0: Life is beautiful, isn't it? Every morning, the sun rises, spreading radiant, citrus-colored light on the world, greeting the new day with brightness and warmth. Every evening, we are tucked in with jewel-toned blankets as the glittering stars wink in time to the chorus of the night. What more could any mere human ask for? It would be simpler if the answer were nothing, but in reality, for some. It is everything. Beautiful is a rather broad description, though, when life has so much more to offer than the view from your bedroom window. Life is champagne and silk dressing gowns, calling cards and slender high heels, intoxicating laughter and perfectly timed touches on the shoulder. Life is crimson-colored sheets and jasmine-scented perfume. It is whispers of stockings and Chantilly lace imported from France just for you. It is compliments and glances and a hand on the small of your back. If we're being honest though, all of this glamour is grand, but offers little satisfaction. Most days are a wild tempest of kindness and manipulation, anger and ecstasy, too much and not enough. There are razor sharp edges in even the softest pillows and we never can tell who put them there. Life is agony. As beautiful as it seems from the outside, inside it is frightening and dark. Inside you are screaming and bleeding, raging and sobbing, fighting and clawing. Make them love you, make them want you, make them see you, make them need you, make them fear you, make them regret you. Because in the blink of an eye or the flash of a blade, when you least expect it, life is over. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie and we We would would be be dead. dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, Jeans. Sure. Welcome to a week of old Hollywood glamour. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds so sexy and fun, and then it spirals out of control so fast. <laughs> Ooh. Indeed. This week, we bring you the sordid tale of Barbara Daly and Tony Bakeland, an American opera of fortune and tragedy told through the golden lens of the public eye. There are so many shocking twists and turns to the story, and I cannot wait to watch as Leslie slowly and meticulously is scandalized by the whole thing.
1: Because <laughs> I don't think you really know much. I I don't. know. I I chose to stay yes. away.
0: I asked you that one question earlier, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, it gave you like a very brief synopsis when mm-hmm. I said we should do this case, but then beyond that, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. And if what you told me is not even the worst of it.
0: Oh, it's not.
1: (laughs) Oh, God.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's the high, some of the highlights, but there's just so much more. Oh, boy. You guys are in for a ride then. Yes, we're going to go on a big roller coaster today. So strap in. But before we begin, I need to discuss the startling lack of glamour in my own life. Tell me about it. I know. I'm so tired of this dreadful quarantine and so desperately want to get back into a theater, not just to perform other people's work, but also to plan some live shows for all of you. But I have begun to wither and wilt. Ugh. (laughs) Leslie can barely fashion perfect bars of pumpkin soap. It's so hard. She's so tired.
1: You know, I talked to my doctor about this the other day, and and they said that I needed vitamin D, and you know what has vitamin D? I'm not going to (laughs) say. I'm 12. (laughs) What, Leslie? What's the second thing that has vitamin D, Holly?
0: Validation? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I was going to say dicks.
1: My dad listens to this.
0: I mean... I was going to say dreams. Great. Yep. And validation. And validation. Ugh. There is one thing, however, you all can do for us, and that's to run on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does help our skin and our souls. And hopefully it eventually trick venues into thinking we're popular. Oh,
1: that would be great.
0: Wouldn't it? So if you ever want to see us face-to-face, tell the world that you like what you hear. Yay! Yay! And if you want to go even further into the supporting We Would Be Dead rabbit hole, you can head on over to Patreon. By leaving us a little monthly donation, you gain access to some pretty cool stuff, including field trips, gifts, discounts at our merch store, access to the complete catalog of campfire stories, and some upcoming extra content. Plus, we will love and appreciate you forever and tell everyone who will listen how amazing, intelligent, attractive, and hilarious you are. Mm. Our patrons are top tier.
1: Yes, I think I'm going to join.
0: <laughs> We've talked about this. We already put forth more than the maximum amount of money. Okay. Actually, no. You know what? At this point, we don't. Yeah. Thanks to our patrons, who we love dearly, we no longer spend money making this podcast.
1: That's very true. Other than the merch. Other than but the merch. Soon-
0: it's almost sold out, so. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. But get, get to the store, guys. Yeah. Get on over there and get some merch. If we sell out, we will get more. But, you know, mm-hmm. you have to show us you like it first.
1: Yeah. And we'll do some other special ones, too.
0: Yeah. We'll get yeah. some of the fun sayings. I love the idea of a hashtag list shirt. Yeah. That sounds super fun. Um, so we'll do more of that for you guys. But we can only do it if you are like, asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we need more vitamin D. <laughs> Remember when I couldn't say diarrhea either? Come on, guys. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> and as always, keep an eye out for upcoming extra content as there are some things in the works. I guess we really should have a meeting about that.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll do lunch next week.
0: I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. And with that said, Leslie, if you don't have any business to take care of, I I do not have any business. To excellent. Take care of. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. November 17, 1972, was a cold and dreary day at 81 Cadogan Square in Knightsbridge, West London. The neat brick buildings with their stern wrought-iron fences stood at relaxed attention amidst the gloom. Posh apartments and well-off socialites glowed from inside the windows. It was quiet now, but many a night the street was bustling with people excitedly hurrying to a posh soiree at number 81. But now, police cars and an ambulance hurried down the street— parking right out front. Officers, detectives, and emergency medical services would enter the building looking for number 81, and other residents would point them in the right direction. Assuming there must have been a party that had gotten out of hand the night before, or maybe the occupants of that flat had another row as they had a few weeks before. Never a dull moment at number 81. Officers in EMS the were there in response to a 911 call made by one of the residents, claiming that there had been a terrible event and his mother was badly possibly mortally injured so the emergency medical team entered without hesitation or waiting for anyone to come to the door
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah they just busted right in the apartment was immaculate and perfectly decorated clearly these were people with both money and taste the furniture was expensive and the art fine this neighborhood was notoriously home to film stars and minor royalty alike. Ooh. Yeah, it's super fancy. I looked up pictures, and I will post them in our photo suite. The kitchen lay awash in the parallel of porcelain white and lurid red. A woman lay motionless on the floor, flame red hair spread out under her head, scarlet blood pooling under her lily-white arms and legs. The woman, beautiful and unmistakable, was Barbara Daly Bakeland, an elite area socialite. A single, penetrating stab wound to her heart seemed to be the culprit. And while EMS got to work trying to revive Ms. Bakeland and load her onto an ambulance, officers were busy gathering evidence. It seemed clear to them that this had been a homicide. But where was Ms. Bakeland's son who called them there? And who had murdered her? Just then, an officer heard a voice coming from another room, and there was Anthony Bakeland, Sitting calmly at the telephone, spattered in blood, ordering Chinese takeaway. Oh. <laughs> yep. Just ordering some quick crab rangoon. Uh, well, I,
1: I love crab rangoon. Who doesn't?
0: I mean, let's make it relatable. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, as he liked to be called, was calm and measured. Nonchalant, even though at first he tried to claim someone else had killed her, even attempting to place the blame on her own mother, his grandmother. But eventually, with little prodding, Tony admitted that it was he who had stabbed his mother in the most unbelievably dramatic way, saying that in her last minutes, quote, it was horrible. I held her hand and she would not look at me or speak to me. Then she died. Oh, wow. Yeah. It seemed almost impossible that a soft-spoken and mild-mannered young man such as this would do this to his adoring mother, But then, according to his shocking records, Tony wasn't all that mild-mannered, and according to Tony, his mother was a little too adoring. Oh. Yeah. So how did such a ghastly deed happen? Tell me. I will. (laughs) How did we get into this money-covered nightmare, and who the hell are these people? Why do I care about them so much? Oh, I don't know, but you're invested, aren't you? I'm so invested. (laughs) To find that out, we have to go back a ways. Now, we may have started this story in London, but the family in question is pure American royalty. Oh, wonderful. Obviously. (laughs) We are trash. (laughs) Expensive trash in this case. (laughs) Barbara Daly was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts because everything takes us back to New England. I love it. Every time, especially this time of year. On September 28th, 1921, or 1922, depending on the source you're looking at, because they all alternate, to her parents, Nene and Frank. It should be noted that her mother, Nene, had experienced a nervous breakdown just a few years par- prior to Barbara's birth, and that mental illness clearly runs in the Daly family. But before we get to that, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about that time period to set oh, the stage? I'm up already. You are. This is oh the gosh. first one. I didn't stretch,
1: guys. Oh, man. Shake it out. We got it. All right. So I went and tried to find some information about the like 1920s family. Perfect. That's what they were. Yeah. The nation's wealth doubled during 1920s, which meant that middle and upper class families had more disposable income than ever before. Department stores carried a wide variety of goods, from clothing to radios. Radios became a new form of entertainment and news uh, distribution, as families gathered around radios each night to listen to programming. Oh. Young people started to go to movies that also offered a new entertainment format. Homes were equipped with washing machines and vacuum cleaners, making household chores much easier. So fancy. Cars became more affordable, with one in every five families owning a car by the end of the decade. Mm. This new level of car ownership gave the option of commuting from rural areas to the city for work. Vehicles also brought families together as they were able to more easily travel and take family vacations.
0: How nice. Yeah. Everybody hop in the car.
1: Women earned the right to vote during this decade, and more of them also began working outside of the home for the first time. Young women gained more freedom and rebelled in minor ways, including how they dress and spoke. Gender roles started to blur as mothers were not expected to stay home every day, and women were not viewed as having no employment skills outside of the home. Um, Even with these advancements, the majority of families in the 1920s consisted of a father who was the wage earner and a mother whose job it was to stay home and take care of the house and children. Before the 1920s, adults viewed children as smaller adults. <laughs> I always love this, so even so working at a Victorian museum, we talk mm-hmm. about this a lot how the colonial era, it was just children were just these tiny adults and once they could like start lifting and they were seen as useful, they just went right into the workforce.
0: Yeah, you know. <laughs>
1: Um, And they weren't educated as much because they just started working. So they were really only educated in their field. Well, if you're going to breed
0: yourself a workhorse, you got to get them going early. I know.
1: That's what I say. You don't need to be reading no dumb books. That's right. That's why I have my kids working at the store.
0: (laughs) You do. (laughs) My kids do nothing. Yeah.
1: I tried to get them at the store,
0: but. (laughs) Give them a few years and then they will absolutely be there. Uh,
1: Many children did not attend school but instead stayed home to help work on the farm or around houses. During the 1920s, education reform greatly improved public schooling for children and education became more valued. School attendance was mandated for the first time. In addition, children were no longer seen as simply little adults, but instead were looked at as future, as the future of the country. Oh. Home life centered a lot on children, including what they were learning in school and how parents could protect them. So that was definitely like a normal family home. Right. That would be that environment. Um, and then I thought this was interesting. Oh, yes. In 1921, mm-hmm. so knowing that she was a socialite and just yes, a few she little things about her, I thought this was cool. In 1921, in an effort to lure tourists to stay past Labor Day, Atlantic City organizers staged the first Miss America pageant in September. Stressing that the contestants were both youthful youthful and not useful.
0: <laughs> useful, youthful. What about yeah. a baby? We yeah. have one of those.
1: They were both youthful and wholesome. The Miss America pageant brought together issues of democracy and class, art and commerce, gender and sex, mm. and started a tradition that would grow throughout the century to come.
0: Thank you. That was delightful. Women are vacuuming. Life is good. Yes.
1: <laughs> They're vacuuming but could go to work.
0: Yeah. If they wanted to vacuum an office building, they could also do that. Yeah. For it was many. nice to get out of the house. Um, and for they sure. had
1: dishwashers,
0: some of them did. So that was nice, but yeah. allowed them to leave. Luxurious. By all accounts, Barbara had a pretty unremarkable early childhood. That is until January of 1933, when her father piped carbon monoxide from his running car's tailpipe into his sealed car and killed himself. Oof. Yeah. Little is known about Frank Daly, but I think we can safely assume that he had some issues. For sure. Yeah. After Frank's death, Nini and 11-year-old Barbara inherited a substantial sum of money in the form of Frank's life insurance policy. Hmm. And Nini decided that they should have a fresh start in New York City. So that is just what they did, packing up their lives and moving into the Delmonico Hotel at 502 Park Avenue. I have that Hamilton song stuck in my head now. Yeah. (laughs) Not too shabby, right? Yeah. Incidentally, that building is now called Trump Park Avenue. So, do with that what you will. (laughs) (laughs) I know when I Googled it to see, like, I wanted to see, well, what is the hotel like? Where is it located? Mm -hmm. What was their life like? I was like, oh. (laughs) Well, I guess that makes sense. Cool. Barbara grew into a young woman, and as she did so, it became obvious to everyone around her that she was, shall we say, genetically blessed. Nice. A.K.A. crazy beautiful. So hot. Totally. (laughs) Pictures of her, she looks like a Barbie doll. Mm. She really was that beautiful. As a young woman living in New York City, Barbara became a prominent socialite, which is just code for rich and famous for being rich and famous. She was one of New York's 10 most beautiful girls, gaining her regular modeling contracts with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, which I always wish meant like super bizarre, (laughs) like really weird, (laughs) but I know it doesn't. It does not. Girl can dream, right? Mm -hmm. Her social status and beauty resulted in frequent invitations to high-society parties, allowing her to date various wealthy admirers. She also suffered mental health problems, though, just like her mother did. Barbara was said to have violent and unpredictable mood swings and was a private patient of psychiatrist Dr. Robert Foster Kennedy. Oh, what a name. Foster Kennedy is a real treat, by the way. He's one of those doctors who meant well and did contribute some really useful things to science, but was also kind of an evil shit. Let me explain. He gives his name to Foster Kennedy Syndrome, which has to do with brain tumors in the frontal lobe that mess up your vision. So it's good that we can recognize that and treat that. That's good. One for him. He was one of the first doctors to use electroconvulsive therapy treatment for mental conditions which, while controversial and historically barbaric, does, in fact, have its uses in modern psychiatry. So, good and bad for him there, I suppose. Foster Kennedy was also one of the first medical professionals to recognize and define shell shock in the First World War, which is also important. Another one for him, right? Yes. But... He also supported widespread eugenic sterilization, castration, and euthanasia of what he termed mental defectives. Ugh. Yep. Fiends, I am going to say the R word in the next passage. It's horrible and we should not use it, but it is a documented quotation and relevant medical terminology from the time in which it was said. Correct. Okay. Please do not take or use the word out of context here. I am merely repeating things. At the 1941 annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, the doctor called for the extermination of incurably, severely retarded children over the age of five. His goal was to relieve the utterly unfit and, quote, nature's mistakes of the agony of living and to save their parents and the state the cost of caring for them. Mm. He concluded, quote, So the place for euthanasia, I believe, is for the completely hopeless defective, nature's mistake, something we hustle out of sight which should not have been seen at all. Foster Kennedy, while professor of neurology at Cornell University in New York, argued that all children with proven mental retardation, what he called feeble-mindedness also, over the age of five should be put to death. Wild. Mm Mm-hmm. So when that guy is your doctor it's pretty safe to say that you're receiving questionable treatment at best. And at worst, being indoctrinated with some pretty awful ideas about mental health care. I tell you this because A, it's fucking interesting. Mm -hmm. And B, it is relevant in a roundabout manner. Mental illness and how it is treated comes back around again and again in this one. And in, like, three quarters of our episodes. Regardless... Barbara was a successful model and a star of the New York social scene, which led to an invitation to Hollywood for a screen test with actor Dana Andrews. And that is a male Dana, not a lady. Yes. Yes. Which I know it is a name that fits either gender, but for some reason, the first six times I read about this, I thought it was a lady. And then I looked it oh, so up and I was so like, funny.
1: whoops. I feel like I teleport to like those eras. So <laughs> it it I thought that it was a man just because of the era. <laughs> well,
0: that's good though, because I, I like got the wrong, wrong picture in my head. But this is a gentleman who starred in a lot of film noir and is often photographed in a fedora and a trench coat. Okay. So, that guy. Oh, that one. <laughs> There's like a hundred of them, but he's one of those. Sadly, the screen test did not lead to film stardom because contrary to popular belief, acting is a skill you cannot just photosynthesize by being attractive in the Southern California sunlight. It did, however, lead to a friendship with fellow aspiring actress Cornelia Dickie Bakeland. Nice. <laughs> which is either a shit <laughs> nickname for a pretty young girl or an adorable one. I'm on the fence. <laughs> yeah. Huh. It could be kind of cute. Dickie.
1: <laughs> hey, Dickie.
0: I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, she'd have to be hot. I guess she is. I, she probably is. Either way, it sounds old money as hell. For sure. And with good reason. Dickie's family, the Bakelands, were owners of the patent for Bakelite, and therefore the Bakelite fortune. In case you don't know what that is, Bakelite was the first plastic made from synthetic components. It is a thermosetting phenol formaldehyde resin, and if you know what that is, good for you, you big scientist, (laughs) formed from a condensation reaction of phenol with formaldehyde. It was developed by the Belgian-American chemist, drumroll please, Leo Bakeland, in Yonkers, New York, in 1907. Bakelite was massively popular and used to make just about everything. In fact, old Grandpa Leo has been called, quote, the father of the plastics industry for his invention of Bakelite, which, as I said, was inexpensive, non-flammable, and versatile, and marked the beginning of the modern plastics industry. I have some antique Bakelite jewelry. It's actually pretty neat. Cool. Yeah. So, that's Bakelite. Wow. Yeah. Look it up. It's pretty cool. This whole story so far sounds like an
1: episode of, the, of Gossip Girl. I never watched Gossip
0: Girl. I feel the shame.
1: I'm judging her hard right now. Though. I like
0: feel arrows hitting me yeah. from all over the place. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, what do you binge on Netflix I if it's know. not Gossip Girl? Just shit children's television most I of the time. Guess. Actually, no. I make sure my children watch pretty decent children's television, but still. Okay, so right now I'm picturing Serena Vander Woods and what's that Blake I think Lively? That's,
1: that's Blake Lively. I knew that. And Blair Waldorf is, I would think, right now she's kind of like a dicky. Serena would be like the one out on the town, like getting like she's all the modeling garb. and yeah. Blair's a little jealous of her.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know who played Blair. Is she also beautiful like Blake Lively?
1: Yeah, she's she's a cute little thing.
0: Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. So, Dickie introduced Barbara to her younger brother, Brooks, a trainee pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force. And if we thought Dickie was an old money name, Brooks Bakeland sounds like a person with a suit named after him. Ooh, I like that. Right? He pro- people probably wear that suit to the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'd wear that suit right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing it as we speak. I'm a very fancy person. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Brooks was rich, handsome, fun, and lazy. Yeah, I mean, he was referred to as like the kind of rich playboy who never got a job and just enjoyed living off his family money, but was the life of the party, really good looking and popular. Cool. I, like, I, I norm- love
1: that. Every like 80s villain. Every 80s villain.
0: <laughs> I, is that why I innately hate that guy? Probably. I think I'm like, yeah. I probably want to kill you. Or like, <laughs> that's probably why I, like, I understand you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a lot of movies yeah. about exactly you. So that that checks out. He had, quote, matinee idol looks. What? Mm -hmm.
1: That's nice. I want somebody to say that about me.
0: Same. I think you have matinee idol looks. Thank you, Holly. You're welcome. You're looking at me right now with your matinee idol looks. Get out of here. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Bricks was, as I said, extremely popular with the ladies because, of course, he was. However, he was immediately taken with Barbara. And Barbara was really beautiful, and charismatic, and also a little
1: crazy. Oh, we all love a little crazy.
0: (laughs) Oh, man, that is a cocktail for men to be immediately drawn to them. They're Mm -hmm. like, you're beautiful and nuts, I love you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This will never work. Let's try it. I'm going to
0: try so hard while all the other women who are not should go away. (laughs) Uh, While Brooks enjoyed dating Barbara, he also enjoyed dating other women and was in no particular, like rush to settle down but barbara knew how to get around that she told brooks she was pregnant there it is yep (laughs) and they rushed to california where they had a quickie wedding barbara listed her profession as quote artist and brooks listed his as quote writer (laughs) (laughs) they were notoriously known as the painter who didn't paint and the writer who didn't write (laughs) love it (laughs) (laughs) they're doing good they're rich and beautiful it's fine Why would they do anything? They had more money than they knew what to do with, and they didn't have to actually earn a red cent. Don't we just love people like that? Yes. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I a little bit wish that was my life. I know. That sounds great. That I wouldn't know the satisfaction of hard, awful work. (laughs) Well, like, I, I hope that it would happen now. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. I would take it now. In a second. I feel like I do a lot of good things with it. Yeah, me too. I also think that hard work should receive validation. Yes. So, like, maybe some will come to us. Maybe. (laughs) Bringing it back around. Thank you all. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) We're here all week. Oh, after they were married, Barbara and Brooks bought a luxury apartment in the Upper East Side of New York. A deluxe apartment in the in sky. In the sky. I, I. <laughs> they sure did. <laughs> they were moving on up. The whole scene was very posh and extravagant. The pair were always impeccably dressed and spent many evenings enjoying the city's most upscale nightlife. Love it. I know. I just want to be in that. Sounds great. Barbara and Brooks also loved to entertain, and they made sure to set up their apartment perfectly for doing so. They held fancy dinner parties for their friends, who included Greta Garbo, Tennessee Williams, and Williams Styron. Styron? Styron? Sorry. I should know who that is, but you know what? I don't. I hope he doesn't call. I bet he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Over time, though, Barbara became well-known to many for her unstable personality, rude outbursts, and bouts of severe depression. Oh, it must have been a great party. She was, I mean, like, she sounds like someone who throws a good party. Yeah. I'm being real. No, I'm i am being real, too.
1: I know you are. People probably went to that party because they were like, she's going to blow.
0: Shit's going to go down, and there's going to be top-shelf liquor. And if you're not there, guys, you're out. <laughs> you broke down if you're not there. Yeah. That sounds right. That sounds yeah. accurate. She also drank really heavily. Barbara was never diagnosed in her lifetime because that wasn't really a thing that was done then, especially to beautiful, rich women with a plastic fortune heir husband. But if I had to hazard a guess as to what was going on with her, I would say she was either bipolar or had borderline personality or narcissistic personality disorder. What do you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She seemed to be very charismatic and lovely but also manipulative and mean. Mm -hmm. She loves having a perfect image and did whatever she wanted without caring for what other people thought or their feelings. She did not care for people refusing to fit the mold that she assigned them in her head either. So if you were something to her, she just wanted you to always be that, not caring Mm. like how you felt about it. She could be obsessive and self-absorbed, and some might even say self-sabotaging. While she said to go through bouts of crushing depression, the fact that she also had periods of being wildly social and popular leads me to believe that there could be mania in there too. She was also very controlling, especially when it came to her son, who we will get to very soon. Oh, right. She definitely was not actually pregnant when she and Brooks got married. What? Yeah, that was a fun trick. My God. Yeah, despite got me. Did she? (laughs) Despite how hard she told him that she was pregnant, she wasn't. And nowhere in any of the literature that I have read on her this week doesn't mention how she got around explaining the fact that she wasn't really pregnant. It just kind of goes away. (laughs) Yep. Speechless. I know. They (laughs) got married, then she was like, that evaporated. (laughs) (laughs) You would think that Brooks would realize pretty quickly when his new pregnant wife had zero problems partying nonstop and drinking like a Viking. Though this was a different time, and I think mm-hmm. pregnant ladies could do those things then. <laughs> I mean, not without a cost, but they didn't want to hear any of that.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't know if it was too weird. And he probably, being the kind of guy he was, he probably didn't want their lifestyle to change too much. Probably not, but... Maybe he just thought that um, she, like, lost the baby. Like, maybe it was just as
0: simple as that. Like, oh, it didn't happen. I think... Also, when that happened to women back then, they didn't explain much to their husband. They were just like, No, they're
1: just like, it didn't happen.
0: Yeah, and he wouldn't, like, see any of the evidence or go through anything with her. I don't know. These people are so wild that really they might have just forgot. Like That would be really funny. Yeah, (laughs) it's possible. In addition to all of this wild and extravagant behavior, Barbara and Brooks both had a great many extramarital affairs. Because of course they did. Yes. I don't think this fact has come as a surprise to anyone listening or you. Mm-mm. No. Initially, it was just Brooks who would cheat, and he did it all the time. Here's the thing, ladies. If you have to trick a man into settling down with you with a false pregnancy, he's probably not going to stay super faithful once you're married. Marriage does not create an invisible padlock on your genitals to which only your spouse has the key. Truth. Yeah, so. Don't fake a pregnancy and think that's going to go well. <laughs> Leslie, God. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, babe. I know it's been over a
1: year. We just, I should just tell you now. We just I'm forgot not, about it yeah, for a while. <laughs> not actually pregnant. Just kidding. I've been keeping that one for... <laughs> For like eight years. (laughs) It's been what's holding us together for eight years.
0: God. The Bakelands had. You can cut that out if you (laughs) want. (coughs) The Bakelands had a violent and tempestuous relationship, often fighting at deafening volumes and even coming to blows. People that came to their parties have so many nuts quotations about them, like, oh, they would fight. It was a show. At one point, in like a a hotel room once, it ended in them wrestling naked until Brooks was standing over top of Barbara with her foot on his chest, on her chest, I mean, and she bit him (gasps) in the calf to get him off her. This is scary
1: and fantastic.
0: I know. I know. It's like the most colorful nightmare. It's like a Ryan Murphy film. Wild. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, now I want to see Ryan Murphy make the Barbara daly Bakelin story. That would be a delight. Yes. Oh. After his Monica Lewinsky story. Oh, also good. The Nurse Ratchet one is coming out, like, now. I want to see that. So bad. Nice. Oh, God. But finally, in 1945, Barbara did fall pregnant with the couple's first and only child. And on August 28, 1946, Barbara gave birth to that child, a son named Anthony. He quickly became her whole life, and little did she know, he would eventually become her death. (gasps) I know. Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about the world Antony, who liked to be called Tony, was born into? Sure. Woo. 1946. That's right. So,
1: Tony would have begun the generation of the baby boomers... Okay, boomer. (laughs) Okay, boomer. Um, These kids would deal with the aftermath of World War II. There would still be restrictions and rationing of certain foods like sugar and meat, Um, even clothing, fabrics, buttons, and more.
0: Oh, God, I love sugar meat. Yes. Sugar sugar and meat. I know, know, but I put them together and it made me laugh.
1: (laughs) Because Tony was born to an upper-class family, it was plausible that he would have a TV and radio in the house. Um, And as he got older, there were, like, tons more children's programming and things like that that came out. Oh, yeah. He had everything. He would have had everything, yeah. Um, The city might not have been different um, or might have been a little different, but... Usually younger kids would have been able to just go out of their house, play with the other neighborhood kids. They'd go down to, like, the park, the soda shop, like, just do whatever.
0: Yeah, that seems like it would have been. And they
1: would be able to do that without ending up on a milk carton.
0: (laughs) They couldn't be on milk cartons until the 80s, so. Yeah,
1: so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And schools would still be segregated until 1954, so he would only have been, like, 8 or 9 when they were – put back together like when that was unconstitutional
0: and he conveniently they moved away then which we'll get to but so he he didn't do any so
1: yeah that was that was really it during that that was like the first couple years where they really started to like cater to children a bit more like when she was born they were doing that I think Mm -hmm. they came out with like a children's magazine around then and then during like the 40s and 50s was when They were putting on, like, kids' cartoons and things that they could, like, sit there and watch for a little bit. They're like, all
0: right, they're not little adults, but we still don't want to take care of them, so let's put on this shiny box with puppets. Exactly. And that will do the job. Yes. Perfect. (laughs) We continue to think that to this day. Just kidding. (laughs) Kind of. Mm. (laughs) For the first eight years of Antony's life, the Bakelands lived in New York— and continued to carry on mostly the way they had before he was born. Yes, there were still parties, and yes, their life was grand, but Barbara also threw herself into the role of mother and lavished her son with attention every waking moment. I say this without exaggeration. It has often been said that Barbara and Tony's relationship was quite intense, bordering on uncomfortable, even early on. Hmm. Yeah during early childhood tony exhibited some of the hallmarks of what a tr- of a troubled future that we have talked about in the past and while some parents would be disturbed by them brooks and barbara took them as signs that tony was exceptional they were like obsessed with him being a prodigy and not a particular prodigy just any just- kind of prodigy <laughs> Just be a thing. They were like, he's (laughs) really smart at something. We don't know what yet. And they tried to force him into any role prodigy they could. (laughs) Just be like, he's brilliant at what? He's just brilliant. They were like, writing, science, math, art, I don't know, music, go! Like, anything. (laughs) What do you need? He's brilliant. Yeah, they just tried to make him exemplary at something. Here's a fun example of how they did that Tony had a stutter as a child, and Brooks had him read aloud from the books of the Marquis de Sade to cure him. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the Marquis, which I can tell Leslie is familiar, first, watch Quills. It's excellent and insane, and it's a movie about the Marquis de Sade's life. Have you seen Quills? No. Oh, it's so good. You and John will love it. Yeah. Um, Second, I can tell you that he wrote... Basically only novels about the most sexually explicit and depraved things on earth just to see how dark he could get. Mm-hmm. And it
1: turns out it was pretty dark. The I talk about him and that—who's uh,
0: this? The Oh, God, that's right. The killer that was like— um, John Edward and, Robinson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do talk about him. Yeah. I don't think we get into how gross he was. No, I just mentioned him. Yeah. But that was like a big— Um, he's truly terrible. If you want to read a lot about women being fucked until they die in the most vile ways possible, he's your guy. Ugh. Perfect fodder for a stuttering grade schooler, right? Tony also had a keen interest in catching flies and pulling their wings off, and then observing the way they were affected by this mutilation. His father thought this meant he was a science prodigy. Uh,
1: uh Uh-huh.
0: That's when they were like, he's a scientist. (laughs) Cool. I know. And... He was studying. He must have been studying balance and aerodynamics by pulling the wings off flies. Yeah, kinesiology and no. Sorry, Brooks. Your kid was just torturing flies. <laughs> That's bummer. I know, but you know what? You probably would have been really an asset for them. <laughs> yeah, this is what totally pull wings off flies. It's very smart. You're probably a science prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just wait a minute see what happens. <laughs>
1: Nothing good. We don't need to see anybody. They're called flies
0: because they fly. If they can't, we've robbed them of their whole identity. But like, uh, do we need them? I don't know. Maybe. We probably do. I think we do. They got to be around for a reason. There's too many of them. There's a lot. And that was our segment about flies. (laughs) While Tony was busy torturing insects and reading aloud from tomes of violent sex, Barbara was slowly slipping further into her own mental illness.
1: Wait, how old was he again reading this?
0: Probably like... Seven? Ugh. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe younger? So screwed up. Yeah. Crazy. They're like, well, this will be good. You'll stop stuttering. I guess he eventually did. (laughs) Yeah, you'd have to to get through that book. (laughs) Right? Yeah. From the summer of 1954 onward, with Antony around eight years old at this time, the Bakelin family led a nomadic seasonal existence, maintaining their home in New York while being based mainly in Europe. They would rent houses and villas in London, Paris, Zermatt, different parts of Italy, anywhere glamorous and lovely. They would kind of bounce, kind of like snowbirds do down here. Like you're down Mm -hmm. here for the summer and then you go to Key West for the winter. So they would just chase the good times wherever they could. Nice work if you can get it, I suppose. Barbara and Brooks continued to live extravagantly, entertain guests, and have affairs It was a turbulent existence for adults, but one can scarcely imagine how difficult that might be for a child. No real home base, no steady friends or school. Occasionally, Tony would be put in boarding schools, which was a cruel move on Barbara's part. Their relationship was incredibly codependent, and when forced to be away from her for extended periods of time, Tony would languish. He was, after all, just a child, and the fact of the matter was that there was no reason Barbara couldn't have cared for him, herself, and sent him to a local day school. And I know a lot of people send their young children to boarding schools, but if you want my personal opinion on the matter, I think it sucks. A little child under the age of 12 should have parental figures in their life for more than just winter break, spring break, and summer vacation.
1: I begged my parents to let me go to boarding school. No, you didn't. I did. As a tiny
0: child or a high schooler? (sighs)
1: No, I think I was, it was like 6th, 7th grade. I wanted to go so bad. Oh, my gosh. Well, the Olsen twins went to a All right. boarding a- school in my yeah. state, and I wanted to go so bad. It went well for them, I think, right? Well, if I was there, it would have been fine. They just so you just wanted to, to like be me. with the Olsen twins. I just wanted to be their friend.
0: All right, that's that makes a little more sense. It
1: just sounded so fun.
0: But I can't imagine how confused and lonely they would be without their parents at that age. That's my personal opinion though. Go ahead and ship your kid off. If that's what you think is right. It worked for Harry Potter, so it did. Much better for him. Also, he was eleven. So he did like a little older. And an orphan. Yeah. He (laughs) He didn't didn't have have parents. parents. (laughs) (laughs) My whole theory is dashed out. It did
1: not work out exactly like that for Harry Potter. And I don't know that it worked out well for Ron Weasley. All oh, right. They would have done much better just staying with their parents.
0: Yeah, man. Going to public school. Okay, so like de- definitively, don't yeah. send your little kid to boarding school. <laughs> Unless you're British royalty, they do that and they all seem to be something. I don't know. <laughs> From 1960 onward, the Bakelin family's main base was an apartment in Paris where during one party, Brooks met an English diplomat's daughter who was 15 years his junior. After Brooks requested a divorce and Barbara subsequently tried to commit suicide, Brooks terminated the affair. When he asked for a divorce, Barbara took an overdose. Although she survived, Brooks felt he couldn't leave her in case she did it again and said, quote, "'Faced with becoming a murderer for the sake of freedom, I gave up my girl,' he said. Wow. Gross. His girl being his affair. Yeah. It was a pattern repeated throughout the rest of their marriage. Afterwards, though, Barbara seemed completely unfazed by what should have been an extremely traumatic moment in her life. Like, her husband tried to divorce her and she tried to kill herself. But she just moved on like everything was fine and nothing had ever happened.
1: Well, That makes sense with her. Yeah, with her, it
0: sure does. The couple then moved forward, just kept going with their life. The Bakelands never fully saw how their behavior affected Tony and how he had progressively become more and more disturbed. Barbara was at once an intense, possessive, and emotionally needy mother and also an entirely neglectful one. As the family traveled from one chic destination to another in an endless round of idle summers, she and Brooks treated their son like a favorite toy to be picked up and put down at a whim. So like I said, like sometimes just for a little while he would be in boarding school, and then he wouldn't. They'd go somewhere else and he'd be with them and then he'd go somewhere else. Like it just wasn't there was no consistency. Hmm. Friends who accompanied the Bakelands on a yacht trip once would comment on how Barbara and Brooks would spend their days drinking wine with friends while leaving Tony entirely to his own devices. They would see him crouching in tide pools, pulling the legs off live crabs. Oh, my God. Well, he has nothing else to do. Just murder stuff. It's fine. There's also one story that I actually don't have in here that I'll, I'll recount quickly because I think it's going to shock you. Um, they were vacationing with another family, and the family had a baby and a nanny. And the baby's food was disappearing, like jars of baby food. Okay. And they were like, wow, where is it going? Like, who's taking the baby's food? And at one point, the nanny came forward and was like, I have to tell you, it's Tony. He takes them in the middle of the night and he eats baby food. I think it's because he doesn't know what it's like to be treated like a child, like taken care of. Oh. Yeah. So he's eating jars of baby food. Poor guy. Mm Mm-hmm. During his adolescence, Tony had revealed to his disinterested parents that he was sexually attracted to men, and Barbara flew off the handle. Because she was so happy about it? No. Oh. Yeah, one would think she'd be like, yes, we can talk about boys, but no, she hated it so much. She refused to acknowledge his homosexuality and was given to frequent fits of violent anger regarding it. Later in life, Tony would tell the psychiatrist that he had sexual contact with men as early as eight years old in life. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, he was reading about it. Yeah. He was probably like, this is fine. Got rid of my stutter. In 1967, Tony really began began to come into his own. It was an interesting time, 1967. A different time. Leslie, why don't you tell us about it? Sure.
1: So in 1967, in the U.K. and areas of the U.S., gay rights were becoming a thing. Good. (laughs) Just a thing. I love Um, a thing. It wasn't against the law to be gay in public anymore, at least in New York. Uh, There were more activist groups popping up to fight for their rights, which is always good. Uh, Gay bars and clubs were popping up in the cities, and even though it was a scary time, it was still a much better time. Um, And then there was quite an art scene that was happening. Mm. So we have um, three kind of art movements that were going on. We had almost an end of an era for pop art. That would be like Andy Warhol style. Mm. Um, Pop art is an art movement that emerged in the 1950s and flourished in the 60s in America and Britain, drawing inspiration from sources and popular and commercial culture.
0: And Tony did fancy himself something of an artist, so this would all apply to the world that he inhabited.
1: Okay, cool. Um, and then we have Arte Povera. Mm. That is a style and movement in art originating in Italy, which he visited often.
0: Yeah, no, he was there. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and this would have started around like in the 60s, combining aspects of conceptual, minimalist, and performance art oh. and making use of worthless or common materials such as stones or newspapers in hopes of subverting the commercialization of art.
0: Oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> See, all the words. Yeah. <laughs> all the words. And then we have um, minimalism. Which – so this would have been – like Art Pavera would have kind of been in the – closer to like 1967 getting big then. And then minimalism would have been starting to seep in a bit more. Okay. Um – and then leading into the seventies, so this can be as uh, minimalism can be seen as extending the abstract idea that art should have its own reality and not be an imitation of some other thing, the medium or material from which it is made, and the form of the work is the reality. So this is where you can see like like the red circle, or just lines, oh, and it just okay. has to do yep, with yep, that. Yep, 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 yep. Even just like like a blank canvas that's framed. And it's just like, it's about the fabric. Stuff. Yeah. Um, nice. And some of it's cool, but some of it I'm like, it's like a red circle. And <laughs> he did it first, I guess. So now it's a lot of money. <laughs> you did it first. You did it first. So cool. <laughs> also, just like clean, like if it's sculptures, they're like the clean lined things that yeah. is like in every home goods. Oh, yeah. It's all home goods.
0: For sure. <laughs> Such, such home goods. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So that's that's
1: probably what he would have been into. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, especially traveling and in his world, they would have probably gone to museums and just stared at shit like that all the
0: time and just talked about nice. it. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Well, I like that journey for them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um in 1967, the family was based in both Switzerland and the Spanish resorts of Cateques. Oh, it's so nice there. Is it? I have no idea. Oh, just <laughs> I thought you were like, oh, I was, when, when were you in Spain? Ugh. It was such a glorious time Whoa. of my life. <laughs> I just had like a stroke and couldn't say anything for a minute. <laughs> the 20-year-old Tony met Jake Cooper, a bisexual Australian man. Jake introduced Anthony to various hallucinogenic drugs— which is really great if you have mental issues. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm going to take that back because there are some problems that um, certain hallucinogenic compounds are therapeutic for. However, when we find out what, J- what um, Tony's problems are, they, they don't really align well with hallucinogens. Got <laughs> it. Which they traveled to Morocco to obtain. Tony and Jake also began a romantic affair. When Barbara was informed of this, her friend Barbara Curtis said she flew into a rage and traveled by car to Spain to bring her son back to Switzerland. However, at the French border, Tony was found to not have his passport. After the ensuing row, like they fought the prison guards. Oh, wow. Yeah. Both Tony and Barbara were arrested and placed in jail, during which time she was quoted as saying, quote, Here you are, darling, at last, manacled to Mummy. I was going to say, she was probably so happy about that. Yes. (laughs) They were handcuffed together in a jail cell. It was everything she'd ever wanted. Super minimalist. Dream come true. Lots of vertical lines. (laughs) After the relationship with Jake ended poorly, to say the least, Tony began seeing a young French girl called Sylvie, which is a cute name. Super cute. Right? Who was also on holiday in Cadet Case. Barbara was thrilled that Tony had a girlfriend, and at last, and when he invited Sylvie for dinner to meet his parents, she immediately began pressing her about becoming Tony's wife, reminding her that one day he would be very rich. Oh, wow. You we get we. married. <laughs> you could be a rich wife like me. Oh, I'd be like, I'm in. <laughs> I know. We'd be like, check, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In the coming weeks, she went out of her way to invite Sylvie over whenever possible, but her scheming went terribly awry. Rather than marrying her son, Sylvie began an affair with her husband. Well, that's bound to happen. Uh huh. That's why he likes Ben. Oh, Brooks. Barbara did not discover that Sylvie and Brooks were seeing each other until the following February, at which point she attempted suicide again, taking an overdose of strong sedatives washed down with vodka. This time, Brooks did not come back to her, however, perhaps realizing that it was the only way to trump Barbara. Sylvie also took an overdose. Because remember, she's—how old is Tony at this point? 20? Yeah. She was his girlfriend, so she's like— Basically a child. Right. So she figured, like, well, if she did it, I'm gonna do it. And it'll work for me. I won't be outdone. Exactly. And this basically left Brooks to choose between what seemed to be the lesser of two evils. And he chose Sylvie and told Barbara that this time he really wanted a divorce. (gasps) Wow. I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Such a so (laughs) Barbara. Barbara and Tony then decided to spend the summer of 1969 in Mallorca drinking and smoking marijuana in a house loaned to them by the daughter of an Austrian archduke. Oh, isn't
1: that every parent's dream with their child? Um, am going to reel that
0: back in. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what happened to them. Oh, no. <laughs> it was here that Barbara got it into her head that she could cure Tony of his homosexuality by forcing him to have sex with women. It began first as prostitutes. But they didn't seem to be able to get the job done. And so, she took it upon herself. (gasps) Yep. No. Mm -hmm. To find more women? Nope. Nope. (laughs) To have sex with her own kid. Oh, fuck. Yep. Barbara was a woman who had beguiled men all over the world and as such, thought she could do the same thing with her own son. Oh, gosh. They began having sex regularly, and would continue to do so for the remainder of her life. Oh,
1: God. How much longer is that? <laughs> it's like, like five years. Oh, Holly, like, Why are you telling us this story? And this is the thing you told, told me. You. I told you. I don't know why it caught me like this.
0: I what? told you this was a ride. Oh Yeah. Barbara, Barbara. Don't do this. <laughs> Just wait. Just- Barbara yeah. remained convinced that she was doing the right thing, though. Reportedly boasting about it whenever she got <gasps> the chance. <gasps> uh huh. I mean, I guess if you really, she's,
1: she specifically thinks she's giving him therapy. Yeah, she does. She so sure why, does. Like, if she was hiding it, it would almost be an extra creepy factor, but you could tell she's completely out of her mind. I guess, yeah.
0: Quote, Barbara called me and told me that she had slept with Tony. Quote, said her friend Ellen Harrington. Quote, I said to her, I didn't think it was such a bad thing. I was trying to remove guilt, but now that I think of it, there wasn't any expressed. Why would you tell her that it wasn't such a bad thing? Oh, my gosh.
1: Can't you picture them, like, on their phones yes. with the long cords just walking around vacuuming? Like, Yesterday watching I them. slept
0: with my son to rid him of his homosexuality. It's not that bad, is it?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know there, Barbara. <gasps> <laughs> I guess not. If you think you're helping him. Oh, I sure do. Well, all right. <laughs> Goodbye. <Hey. laughs>
0: What the hell is wrong with rich white people? (laughs) And then she
1: hangs up and calls, like, Nancy next door.
0: (laughs) Who's next on my list? Gotta make sure everyone's all right. Did you hear about Martha (laughs) and Barbara? Oh, my God. Oh, God. She was very honest about it. She said she had done it to break him of his homosexual tendencies, remembered Bernard Fireham, a painter who met Barbara on a cruise shortly afterwards. Quote, she talked about it as though it were a therapeutic act. All of that is so crazy, I don't even know what to do with it. I, yeah. I mean, that's, that, it just is. If you are thinking of having sex with your own child to cure them of their gayness, and then you think that act is therapy, you, my friend, are the one who needs locking up. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Later that summer, Brooks came to stay on Mallorca with Sylvie, unaware that Barbara and Tony were also there. (gasps) Apparently, old money... All goes to the same place over the summer. This,
1: where, how can we get a hold of Ryan Murphy? This needs to be a show. I know. Wait, this is our, this is our thing. Yeah. We are going to write a screenplay. Okay. Let's do it. This All is right. it. This That's is our it. play. It's on. Who is going to be one of our sons? <laughs> Ew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Ryan Murphy has some particularly attractive men that act for him and his things. So we're fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's still gross. When Barbara discovered... That um, Brooks and Sylvie were there. Tony began. I guess she told Tony, and he began visiting them. And it became immediately apparent to Brooks and Sylvie that Tony was not in a good way. Though it has to be said that having your father and your ex girlfriend, who are now married with a new child, oh, come yeah. and visit you while you're on vacation, where all you're doing is having sex with your own mother, might get anyone close to the ba- breaking point, if not right around the oh bend. My God, what if their child's name was Tony? <laughs> Oh, my God. What if it was a girl and its name was Barbara? Oh, oh. All of this is awful. Quote, it was very uncomfortable, very hard, recalled Sylvie. Ew. He left messages for Brooks in our flower pots. I found one. It said, Daddy, please, please, Daddy, come back to Mummy. She's so unhappy. Pfft, he acted like an eight-year-old. Okay, Sylvie, I feel like you don't have a lot of room to talk, so maybe pipe down. Yeah, she needs to shut it. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> One friend who visited Tony and Barbara at the Archduke's house, because remember, they're staying in an Archduke's house that summer, was startled to see that a broken chair was in the flower beds. And Barbara just casually told her that Tony had thrown it there in a fit of rage. Like you do. I mean, when you're being raped by your mom nonstop, you probably do some pretty angry stuff. I always put a chair in the flower bed. <laughs> that's the hallmark. That's, that's if the you side. see a chair in the flower bed, no, don't do that, you guys. Some people just leave chairs in their flower beds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Later, the same friend saw a typewriter smashed and mangled on the steps leading down to the cellar. Barbara explained that Tony had smashed it up when he was upset about something. And he's a writer. I know. Prodigy. I love him. Just kidding. The typewriter was one that Tony had used to write poetry, which he had showed to his friend Alistair Reed. His poems had started out as gentle, unremarkable pieces of work, but increasingly they were replaced by eerie and incoherent page-long ramblings, something we have seen before in manic cases, uh-huh. like the writings of Elisa Lam. Yes. Barbara went back to New York the following year, and Tony joined her there soon afterward. <sighs> During one dinner party, he disappeared to his room and then just came out totally naked. <sighs> He just streaked from one end of the apartment to the other, recalled one of the guests. Well, he learned it from his parents. (laughs) He learned it from watching you. (laughs) Tony's behavior took a more worrying turn. More worrying than that. When he enrolled in a New York art school soon afterwards. Halfway through one lesson, the college registrar, Sylvia Locken, was called to the classroom because Tony wasn't responding to anybody and seemed to be in a world of his own. And while everyone else was painting still life of flowers and fruit... His canvas depicted disturbed figures with blood dripping down their sides. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Quote, it was obvious to me that he was very troubled, you think? And looking back, it's very surprising that he wasn't in some sort of hospital. Hey, you say things. Good job. (laughs) Oh, my God. How many years are we in now? We have five years yet. (laughs) I think we're less. Okay. Dismissing this strange behavior, Barbara remained convinced that her son was nothing more than a misunderstood genius who was never meant to work and toil in this sick society. Oh, my God. Cool, 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 Barb. Mommy. Yeah, you might want to rethink your parenting strategies as it is obvious that this kid is going to murder you so soon. So soon. Yeah. Is it soon? as It is bang? soon. Okay, good. She seemed <laughs> oblivious to the possibility that Tony's troubles might stem from their increasingly unhealthy relationship. Quote, I am fucking my mother, Tony told one of his friends during this time. Oh Quote, I don't know what to do. I feel desperate. And you would think that this would raise enough of a red flag for someone to intervene. But nope. Everyone back then thought the family business was nobody else's business and that insanity and traumatic events were probably just a lie. Well, I mean, and that's still
1: true in that upper class, that high, you know, I'm from Connecticut and we keep our family troubles to ourselves.
0: Well, you don't want any (laughs) of those. I'm just kidding, no. (laughs) Barbara herself... Never to be outdone, then enrolled in a creative writing class and wrote a vivid account of a mother's sexual relationship with her son. She a class. joined the class yep. to write this story.
1: <laughs> yes, you did. Mm-hmm. I this, want to better articulate myself.
0: Yes, and I would oh like gosh. edits on it, so I'm going to do it for a class. Mm-hmm. Oh, this account was referred to very publicly by a man named Samuel Adams Green, whose writing has led me to believe that he was one of the most pompous men to ever exist. But he did launch Andy Warhol's career and was close personal friends with Greta Garbo and John Lennon, so... Great. I guess he could back it up. Barbara had an affair with Green in 1969, during which time she would introduce him to her son, Tony, claiming that he was a great up-and-coming artist. He was not. And Samuel Green was not impressed... He was also not quiet about being not impressed, telling anyone who would listen that Tony was merely a sullen, rich kid wasting his life smoking pot on a beach. And getting fucked by his mom. Yep. The relationship did not last long, however, and not because of that. Green broke it off just six in, after just six weeks, but Barbara became violently obsessed with him, often sleeping on his doorstep when he would not let her in. She pursued him relentlessly, and when she returned to the United States permanently that fall, she famously walked barefoot across Central Park in the snow, wearing nothing but a Lynx fur coat to demand entry into his apartment. Okay, that is kind of a badass move. I like it. Yeah. I'm going to let Barb have that one, just that one. Okay. But that's it. Everything else is awful. Although, I think that's how I would die, so. (laughs) Walking barefoot (laughs) in Central Park? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) no. So in false. a lynx fur coat yeah. and nothing else underneath that is sexy. Yeah. It only make it halfway and be like, Ugh. "We all know what's in my head now." Yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> it's fine. Some folks who visited the Bakeland's home recall seeing portraits painted by Tony showing his mother decapitated with serpents entwined around her neck. Oh. <gasps> yeah, it's going really well oh for them. Soon even Barbara was forced to admit that they're be a serious problem when Tony turned up late one night, clearly delusional and highly agitated. Fearing he might attack her, she arranged for him to be admitted to a private psychiatric clinic. Although his medical records suggest that his prognosis seemed poor, he was discharged after just six weeks because Barbara could not afford his treatment. Remember, she's divorced
1: oh, from right. Brooks at
0: this point, so she doesn't have access to all that money. Brooks had cut her allowance. Uh, clearly, she has an allowance or some alimony or whatever she had. Right, probably. And refused to fund Tony's care himself. Rather than being mentally ill, he said that his son was, quote, a personification of evil and dismissed psychiatrists as practitioners of mumbo jumbo, which is cool because this is the guy who made his stuttering grade school child recite violent sexual imagery and was decidedly pleased with him torturing insects. But now, now that it's all gone to shit, he's just evil. Got it. But then
1: why wouldn't he still want him to be taken care of? What does he want to do Psychiatrists
0: are mumbo jumbo. They don't do anything. But then where is he going to put him? With his mom. Oh, my God. He doesn't care. They have another kid. He married, his, he married Tony's ex-girlfriend. Right. They have another kid. He wants nothing to do with his former life. He's actually, like, it, it is documented in some places that he started referring to Tony as just Barbara's son. He'd be like, your son did this. He would never claim ownership of him. I hate that. Yeah, it's gross. Tony soon relapsed, obviously, because he was just home being what he was, and beat Barbara unconscious with a heavy wooden walking cane one night. And then, when her divorce lawyer tried to come to her aid, he knocked him out too. Well,
1: yeah. Yep, don't get in his way. No. No.
0: After that episode, Tony was diagnosed as having schizophrenia by psychiatrists at the local hospital, which, remember, not good with hallucinogens, who recommended that he should be sent to a private mental institution. Yes, yes, he should. Mm-hmm. But still, his father refused to pay for the cost. Mm-hmm. Once again, Tony was released. Motherfucker. Yep, literally. Literally a motherfucker. <laughs> not, by his, not by choice, though. No. In late July of 1972, Tony tried to throw his mother under the traffic outside of her penthouse on Cadogan Square in London. He pushed her into traffic on the street. I mean, okay. That's Cadogan Square, sorry. She was only saved by his physical weakness. (laughs) I love that fact. His little noodle arms couldn't get her out there. Oh, Tony. I know. And the intervention of her friend Susan Guinness. Although the Metropolitan Police arrested Tony for attempted murder, Barbara refused to press charges, and Tony was subsequently admitted to the Priory Private Psychiatric Hospital, but was released soon afterwards. Tony then undertook sessions with a psychiatrist while living at home, and this doctor became so concerned about Tony's condition that on October 30th, he warned Barbara that he was capable of murder. Barbara dismissed the doctor's assertion. The doctor went so far as to say directly to Barbara, quote, your son is going to kill you. I think you are in grave danger. Barbara simply replied, quote, I don't, and then went on her way. Okay. I know he's only tried a hundred times. Right? The psychiatrist, however, was not so sure and called the damn cops himself, Mm -hmm. good on the psychiatrist, warning them. He said, quote, I told them I thought something was going to happen over at 81 Cadogan Square and asked if they could put a guard there, but they said they were not really allowed to do much until something actually happened. Right. End quote. And happen it did. (sighs) Two weeks later, on November 17th, 1972, Barbara went to lunch with a friend and returned home to Tony, who wanted to phone his father. Barbara wouldn't let him phone his father, blaming his fragile mental state. And in response, Tony murdered his mother by stabbing her with a kitchen knife, killing her almost instantly. Stabbed her right in the heart. Which is so dramatic. Who has that kind of aim? A slayer? What, basically? One stab, just one stab wound, and she was dead. That is
1: some Buffy shit right It is there. some Buffy
0: shit. She was 51 years old at the time and Tony was 25. Police arrived and found Tony at the scene of the crime and we are back to where we started. Wow. Tony was confessed confessed to and was charged with her murder with little resist. He was very polite to the police. What do you get? Um, What was this Chinese order? I don't know. I like to think it was crab rangoon. Yeah. Maybe
1: some general sows.
0: Oh, also delicious. General sows.
1: General Both are sows.
0: good. Maybe some chicken with broccoli. I want Chinese now. I know, me too. Ugh. Tony was institutionalized at Broadmoor Hospital, which is an infamous place, and we will give it its own due diligence at another point in time, until July 21st, 1980, when, at the urging of a group of friends, he was released, which sounds like nothing. And I'm not exactly sure how they gained so much momentum, but apparently his friends and family pled his case in that they said his rage was all directed towards his mother because of her years and years of mental abuse, sexual abuse, and rape against Tony. Okay. Which, yeah, makes sense. And with her dead, they strongly believed that he was no longer a danger to society. And there were plenty of psychologists who agreed. And honestly, at that time, if I were there, I'm not sure that I wouldn't have agreed. Right. The whole situation was insane and any kind of – I mean there are like documented poems and stories and paintings and his rage is always directed towards his mother. So it seems like a particular fixation and I get why you would think that. Didn't we have – what was the other case where it was kind of like if the
1: guy just got to kill his mom when he was younger, oh, it yeah. he might not have become an actual serial killer.
0: Oh, God. I know. He lived
1: with his grandparents, I think, Right.
0: I can't remember who that is, okay. but I, I it sounds very familiar. Yeah, we'll think about it and come back to it. Yeah, for
1: sure. But um, but yeah, it's. I mean, that was his problem. Mm-hmm. Was I mean, he's twenty five at this point, so he definitely has some. He's going to have some issues. He's got some now shit going on under to the to hood. Through, but I don't know that he would necessarily feel the need to kill somebody.
0: And I, I assume that while he was in Broadmoor, because it was a hospital. That he was medicated for his schizophrenia and taken care of as well as they could, but who knows what different cocktails he needed and how well-managed he was. True. That's all we really know about that. I
1: mean, essentially, he's just trying to get away from his captor.
0: And that is what they argued successfully. Okay. Okay. Upon his release, Tony, now age 33, flew directly to New York City to stay with his 87-year-old maternal grandmother, NeNe Daly. Only six days after his release, on July 27th, he attacked her with a kitchen knife, oh. stabbing her eight times and breaking several bones. He was then arrested by the New York City police and charged with attempted murder because that bad bitch survived. Wow. Yup. And sent to Rikers Island prison. Some claim Tony said to his said that his grandmother refused to have sex with him. And so he got mad. <gasps> And he stabbed her.
1: Oh, I was pulling for you, Tony.
0: I know. I was really pulling for you. I know. They. He Apparently, he, he told that to some people. Um, and he said he got mad at her for not having sex with him. And he hit her in the head with a telephone receiver. But after seeing that he hurt her, he killed her mercifully. He wanted to, like, put her out of her misery. So he started stabbing her. And when police arrived, now this is direct quotation, he told the police... It was okay. She won't die. The knife won't go all the way in. I tried, but it's not working. So strange. Mm-hmm. That seems reasonable to say to the cops. I'm sure they understood. After eight months of assessment by the psychiatric team at Rikers Island, Tony was expecting to be released on bail at a court hearing on March 20th, 1981. However, the case was adjourned by the judge due to a delay in the transfer of his medical records from the U.K., Tony returned to his cell at 3.30 p.m. on March 20th, 1981 and was found dead there 30 minutes later, suffocated by a plastic bag. Oh. Most people think that he killed himself. Okay. A few members of his family are trying to say that somebody else killed him. I think he killed himself. That is a long and tortured existence. Yeah. Or maybe he asked somebody to do it for him. Maybe. But...
1: Weird! Wow.
0: In two thousand and seven, the film *Savage Grace* was released. It's based on the life of Barbara and Anthony and Tony Bakeland. Um, I haven't watched it yet because I didn't want to take um, a dramatized account. Okay. Um, and then like hold it as fact in my mind. We but need am, to watch this. We're gonna watch the shit out of this. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Watch this now. <laughs> <clears throat> It begins with Tony's birth and follows the family to the time of Anthony's arrest for the murder of his mother. The movie is starring Julianne Moore and Eddie Redmayne, oh. both very sexy humans. Okay. So that's going to be a very confusing time. So confusing. <laughs> I know. And it was based off a book of the same name. After the film opened, Barbara Bakeland's former lover, Samuel Adams Green, remember that guy? <laughs> wrote an article pointing out elements in the film which were potentially misleading for those trying to read back the reality inspiring it, but he only really talked about himself. He <laughs> referred in particular to the scene which depicted Barbara, Antony, and Sam Green in bed together all having sex because apparently someone had tried to make this whole story even worse. And Green wrote in an article, quote, "'It is true that almost 40 years ago "'I did have an affair with Barbara, "'but I, am cer- I certainly never slept with her son, "'nor am I bisexual.'" Because that's the biggest problem in that whole movie. Yeah. She I started, just don't want people to think I'm gay. I know. Basically. She started telling people that she had an incestuous relationship with her son as a way of curing him of his homosexuality. But I don't believe she had sex with Tony. I think she simply enjoyed shocking people. End quote. Right. I think she had sex with Tony. I think she did too. Yeah. Green then embarked on legal action against the filmmakers, which was still unresolved at the time of his death. And shortly before that, he said the most egotistical thing I have ever read in my life, which is, quote, I admit I may have led a life that is worthy of a movie, but not this one. Ew. End quote. Ew. And that is the story <laughs> oh my of Barbara God. Daly and Anthony Bakelin. This is wild. <laughs> I couldn't wait to tell you this. What the fuck just happened? I don't know. See, it made wow. sense, right? There were points when I was writing it where I was like, I don't even know where I am anymore. Oh my god, what happened to Sylvia? Sylvie? Sylvie? I think her and Brooks just lived the rest of their life. I guess Brooks she... died in like like two thousand and eight, I think. Yeah, I, I can... wonder if she might still be alive. Then she very well could be. That's true. I don't know if she's like you can I don't know if she's noteworthy enough to be able to look up, which right. is like a cruel thing to say, but you know what I mean.
1: That's mm. interesting. I wish we could talk to her and just be like, what the fuck happened then?
0: What the yeah, fuck was going why? on? Why are you okay with that? Yeah, I can't. If I find any follow-up on this story, I will um I will certainly post it on all of our yeah. social media. I will look – let me look real quick.
1: It's hard because she – I mean, for her, she was so young that if you – that's the relationship that she started as at a young age. So to her, that was probably – like all of that drama was somewhat normal for her, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, she was just in love with this older guy that was taking care of her and had a lot of money. But I don't know. She might have just been like, they're weird, but we're fine like yeah. kept, you know
0: well brooks did try to really separate that's what Them. i'm thinking yeah so you know yeah maybe she but she was the she was tony's girlfriend at one point in time how how could you come off of that untouched i don't <sighs> this is a pure episode of gossip girl i'm telling you it's nuts I like, I warned you a lot that it was going to be
1: real crazy. I know. I mean, but you told me that they had sex, and I did. And you were so and, very shocked. Yes. And then it was. Oh my gosh, so crazy. Wow.
0: Yeah. There's. How do you guys feel? <sighs> Probably just <laughs> tired now. Yeah. <laughs> all went through a lot together. Wow. I feel like I stuttered a lot. I'm sorry. We I We are just getting into character. I didn't read the Marquis de Sade enough. Yes. Was his major, like, scandalous book Josephine, I think it's called? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Watch
1: Quills. So good. Uh, just read, like, the first paragraph of his Wikipedia, and it's so disturbing.
0: He, like, <laughs> died in a mental hospital in a cell covered in shit that he yes. used to write his work on a wall. It, it's it's yeah. bananas. Hey. But Jeffrey Rush plays him in the movie that I'm talking about, and he is fantastic. So, okay, yeah, it's on our list. Okay, (laughs) so that was that was
1: that. I we have to toast now. We do have the toast.
0: Oh, I don't have a who on earth. Can I use your? Oh, uh huh. Who are we gonna toast? Oh, um, the doctor that. um, Yes, the call the cops. Yes, that's a really good one. We don't even have that person's name, but the psychiatrist that was like, he's going to kill you. Yeah. So cheers to that guy for being awesome. He gets his own clink. Cool. Um, I'm out. No one else really comes out well in this story. Not even Sylvie, because she said all that shit stuff about them being on vacation.
1: Mm -hmm. She's like, he's
0: being such a whiny bitch. Right. Yeah, no. Bye.
1: No one else. I have no one else. No. That's it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh
0: my God, it's so not redeeming. Um. Yeah, that's that's our toast this week. Okay. And um uh wait, I I do have one. <laughs> God, there's just no way I can really relate this one. Like we will never be in any of those positions. So if any of this crazy nonsense happened to or around us in any way, oh, then surely <laughs> we, we would be, be dead. dead.
1: Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
0: Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye.